Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry, and with me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. As I mentioned in yesterday's show, we have been talking about a trip that Eric and myself took, along with a friend of ours, Trevor Wolf, to see some of the historical sites in Nauvoo, Illinois, Kirtland, Ohio, and in the Palmyra, New York area. And as I mentioned, we wanted to do this because we wanted to hear what LDS tour guides were telling visitors about these places that are very special to them. In yesterday's show, I mentioned how we had visited the Kirtland Temple. The Kirtland Temple is located in Kirtland, Ohio. It is a very important place for the Latter-day Saints, even though they don't own the temple. The Community of Christ owns it. The Community of Christ is a splinter group. They claim to have around 200,000, 250,000 members, and they don't believe a lot of the unique teachings that the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, believe. There are some significant differences in their theology. When we went to the Kirtland Temple, our guide was a young man by the name of Braden. And he was not a member of the Community of Christ, and he was also not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, if you want to see some pictures of the Kirtland Temple, we do have some photos on our website. Where can people see those, Eric? They just have to go to mrm.org slash Nauvoo hyphen trip. Nauvoo is spelled N-A-U-V-O-O hyphen trip. And we also have links to the shows that we're doing on our trip that you can find there as well. Now, Braden takes us, first of all, to the top floor of the Kirtland Temple. And this is a significant location in the temple because this is where Joseph Smith claims that the heavens were opened to him and he beheld the celestial kingdom of God. This is found in section 137 of the Doctrine and Covenants. The introduction to section 137 says, A vision given to Joseph Smith the prophet in the temple at Kirtland, Ohio, January 21st, 1836. Now, Smith was not alone in this room at that particular time, but you wouldn't really know that by just reading section 137 by itself. In yesterday's show, we read much of section 137 to you, but we stopped at verse 7 because of what it says there. Thus came the voice of the Lord unto me, saying, All who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it, if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. And the point that I made yesterday was a point that I've raised with many Latter-day Saint missionaries. If it's true that if you die without a knowledge of the gospel, and this, of course, in the context of Mormonism, would be the restored gospel that they believe Joseph Smith reintroduced after it was lost for centuries, if you were to die without a knowledge of that gospel— but you would have received it if you had been allowed to tarry or allowed to live long enough to hear and receive it. You will be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. 
And I would say that the celestial kingdom of God here, I would assume, is the top level. There are three levels within the celestial kingdom. And from what I'm reading here, it seems like you're going to get the very best, which is exaltation, which is eternal life. This is what every Latter-day Saint who is living today is striving for. Here, you have an automatic ticket to the very best. And of course, what most Latter-day Saints are looking forward to in that top level of the celestial kingdom is not just that they will become gods and given the ability to organize their own worlds and be gods over that world, but you will be with your family. Now, that becomes a confusing doctrine in and of itself because you have to ask yourself, how many generations of my family will I be with? And it doesn't really make sense, and we've talked about this before, but let me just restate this. Let's say your wife is a good Latter-day Saint, and let's say she's sealed to her family, who are good Latter-day Saints. Will your wife be with them on their world, or will she be with you on your world? Will your children, if they were good Latter-day Saints, would they be with you on your world, or will they be with their wives and their children on their own world? You see, it doesn't work. It might sound like a great idea, if you have a good family relationship, I might add, But it really doesn't work out. But see, that's the problem when you're making up stories. You don't always seem to carry them to logical conclusions. And of course, this idea of being with your family throughout eternity, it doesn't end up being logical at all the way it's described in LDS theology. Verse 8 continues, and it says this, Also all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with all their hearts, shall be heirs of that kingdom. Now, verse 8 sounds like it's just a restatement of verse 7. Now, if it's going to say it twice, I think we need to pay attention. And if it's a fact that if we die without a knowledge of the restored gospel, that we go right into the celestial kingdom, are the LDS missionaries really doing us a good service by telling us about this restored gospel and about their church that they believe is the only true church on earth? I would argue, no, they're not. And this is why. Because in order to get into the celestial kingdom, once you know about it, the requirements are this. You must repent of all your sins, which according to the LDS definition, as we mentioned yesterday, is not just a confession of those sins, It's also an abandonment of those sins, never to repeat those sins again. Who's doing that? Certainly not the missionaries that are bringing you this message. But not only that, you must also keep all of the commandments. Not some of them. You must keep all of the commandments. LDS leaders from the beginning to today often emphasize staying on the covenant path. What is the covenant path? Doing everything that is required of you in order to end up in the celestial kingdom. If you've never heard about the celestial kingdom, if you've never heard about the restored gospel, and you die in that ignorant bliss, according to what Joseph Smith is telling us here in verse 7 and 8 of section 137, you go right straight to the celestial kingdom. Think about what you're saying here, Bill, because Doctrine and Covenants section 1, verses 30 and 31 says, For I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. Nevertheless, he that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven. Notice, God does look upon sins with the least degree of allowance if you haven't heard of it. Yeah, we think so. To add to what you just said, though, Eric, how many Latter-day Saints have we talked to when we bring this up to them 
assume that God is going to look at their sins with allowance. I can recall a number of conversations that I've had with Latter-day Saints, and when I bring out this conundrum, they will argue something like, but Heavenly Father loves me. Well, does that mean that his love is going to supersede what the written word in the Doctrine and Covenants actually says, that he cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance? Are you assuming he's going to look at your sins with allowance? And they're assuming that he probably will. He would have to. So the only two ways that you can actually get straight to the celestial kingdom is, number one, keep all the commandments of God continually. And that would be the first way that Latter-day Saints are trying to do it. Or the second way is never hear about it in the first place and have a second chance when you get to spirit prison. And the question that I raised yesterday is, well, how do you know you're going to embrace it in the spirit prison? My rebuttal to that is, well, I would assume that I probably have more of a chance embracing it after I die than living up to that high standard that the church places upon its people during this mortality. That I know I will not do. I will never accomplish that. I am not a person as sincere as I am in my Christian faith. I don't keep the commandments continually, as it says in the Doctrine and Covenants. I don't keep all of the commandments. I am a fallen human being who recognizes my fallenness. It's my fallenness that forces me to turn to the foot of the cross and trust in the mercy that Christ gives in the fact that his righteousness becomes my righteousness when I put my faith in what he did on my behalf. Now, you raise two issues, Eric, but there's actually a third one if you look at verses 9 and 10. For I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desires of their hearts. And I also beheld that all children who die before they arrive at the years of accountability are saved in the celestial kingdom of heaven. If you're a child and you die before you arrive at the years of accountability, the years of accountability, that would be the age of eight, according to Mormon doctrine. Once you turn eight years old, it seems that you are just as accountable for your sins as any adult would be accountable for their sins. So let's say you're seven years, 364 days old, you're safe. But as soon as you have that eighth birthday, now all of a sudden, for some reason, according to Mormonism, you're just as accountable for your sins as if you were an adult who has been a member of the LDS Church for years and years and years. Does this sound even plausible. I mean, first of all, does the Bible really teach about a specific age of accountability being, for instance, in this case, the age of eight? I don't recall anything like that. Certainly, the Bible is silent on any such age. I would think if you're accountable at all, it would be that you know the difference between right and wrong, and you would think most children know that, because what's the first word most kids learn from their parents? No. No. Why? Our sinful nature, we are doing what we want to do. I don't know who it was that said it, but there's a good reason he said why babies are small. Because if they were born our size, they would kill us if we did not give them what they wanted. 
And there could be some truth to that. Sandwiched between these verses of hope of if you don't have any knowledge, you're going to go straight to the celestial kingdom, or if you die before you're eight, you're going to go to the celestial kingdom, is I think the toughest verse in this entire section, Bill. Verse 9, for I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desires of their hearts. I think that's scary because if we're going to be judged on our works and on our desires, well, first off, we as Christians believe that we're completely sinful. We're innately sinful and we do the wrong thing all the time. And if we're judged on our works, well, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And he says, on that day, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think that verse going with verse 9, that's pretty damning for anybody who's already heard the gospel. Especially when you consider in the book of Revelation that those who do not have a faith in Christ, they are judged according to their works. And what happens to every single one of them? They're cast in the lake of fire. Their works will not stand up. And I don't even know how a Latter-day Saint's work could stand up either, because every one of the works that a Latter-day Saint does is for their own benefit. They do this work because they want to get something from the one they believe to be their Heavenly Father. There's an exchange there. They have to do the work in order to get the blessing. So that's why Latter-day Saints are striving so hard to do what they are told to do, is because they want something at the end whether it's the celestial kingdom or godhood specifically, or whether it's to be with their family, they know what their requirements are, and that's why they are striving to do them. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism.